Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Okay, welcome everybody to episode 54 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. And for those of you who typically have not been listening to this podcast, but are just joining because of the exciting lineup of Lenten series speakers we have, um, we started this podcast back in March of 2020, right when the pandemic hit, in order to offer words of grace and theological grounding that could keep us connected as a community during what was and is a pretty challenging and stressful time. And whenever we started this, I thought that max, we'd do 10 episodes, but almost a year later, I've run out of things to say, plus it's Lent. And so we got five great people the next five weeks who are going to be on this podcast. And our first uh, is a really good friend of mine. He's a colleague who I really respect and also someone I'd even consider one of my teachers. I've learned a lot from this person. The Reverend Aaron Zimmerman is the rector of St. Albans Episcopal Church in Waco, Texas. Aaron graduated from seminary the same year I did in 2008, but his MDiv is from Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry. And before he was at St. Albans, Aaron served in churches in both Pittsburgh and Houston. He's a contributor to the Mockingbird blog and magazine and the past president of the Board of Directors of Mockingbird Ministries. He's also on the advisory board for Storymakers NYC. Aaron, welcome to St. Michael's Episcopal Church. I'm really glad that you are with us. Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here. And you asked me to talk a little bit to reflect. Uh, I consider it, this is my deep thoughts portion of the podcast. And then you and I will have a conversation. Unless are we supposed to have a conversation right now? No, I want to hear deep thoughts by Aaron Zimmerman. Okay. All right. So I was thinking about the talk that I gave for this Lenten series. Uh, and this is sort of a little bit of a distillation of those ideas, but kind of putting it another way, because I was thinking for you, listener, I don't know you, I've never met you, uh, and I, but I want to give you something to hold on to, some theological ideas that maybe will help. Uh, again, this whole idea, from what I understand, this podcast in general, but this specific Lenten series in particular, is giving you some help in this time. And I'll give you two of the theological ideas that have been the most helpful for me, uh, both as a pastor, but more importantly, just as a person in trying to be a Christian in a world that is uh, challenging, to say the least. It was challenging pre-pandemic, and of course, it's even more so now. And those two ideas are low anthropology and high Christology. And these are the two touchstones of the way I see the world as a Christian, the way I work as a minister of the gospel, low anthropology and high Christology. So I'll talk about them both and why I think they matter. So the first thing, is low anthropology. If you listen to my talk for this Lenten series, I talk about the importance of knowing our Christian history and how that helps us go through difficult times now. 
And one of the things that you see if you look at Christian history is that everybody in the Bible is a massive failure except Jesus Christ. And that's another way of saying I have a low anthropology or low theological anthropology. That is the word that is about how you understand human beings. Anthropos is a person, a uh, man uh, in Greek. And so your anthropology is how you understand human beings. Are we beings full of potential whose only limit is ourselves and we can just get better every day in every way if we would just try a little bit harder? That would be called a high anthropology. Or do you have a low anthropology? Uh, Woody Allen, who I know is a controversial figure, though, said something pretty brilliant in Annie Hall, that movie in, um, with Diane Keaton in the 1970s. There are two kinds of people, he said, the terrible and the miserable. And that's a low anthropology. Uh, my wife has a bumper sticker on the back of her car, those low anthropology. So we are definitely, that's our team. And the reason it's important, and, and this is a very biblical view of folks, not to say that there isn't wonderful things, there aren't wonderful things about human beings. We are made just a little lower than the angels, as the writer of the Hebrew says. And we are made in God's image, as we read in Genesis 1. Nevertheless, Jeremiah tells us the human heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And Jesus himself says that out of the heart of human beings comes murder, rage, adultery, deceit, slander, malice, all that sort of stuff. That is baked into the cake in Jesus's mindset and his understanding. And so he has a very low anthropology. You know this about yourself. If you've ever tried to keep a New Year's resolution, uh, and uh, I mean, it's something like 90% of people have failed by Valentine's Day. It's just very hard on our own strength to get better. If you are a person in recovery, you uh, meaning um, uh, recovery from addiction, and if you've been in a 12-step meeting at any point, you know that step one is we admitted that our life was unmanageable and we were powerless to change it. And that is a low anthropology. And I don't want to say why this is important. Not only is it biblical, um, it also um, will impact greatly how you see yourself and how you see others. If you embrace a low anthropology, um, it will make you a little bit more humble about yourself because you will realize that just as there are huge, annoying idiosyncrasies in the people that you live with, uh, you might also have to admit that there are some in you yourself. If you see that other people have blind spots, you will have to admit that you have some in yourself. This is what a low anthropology does for you. You realize that if you have a low anthropology about others, if you can observe those things in others, you can be pretty sure you have that in yourself as well. So it enables you to be a little bit humble. You cannot be that annoying person at the Thanksgiving dinner table that tells everybody why they're wrong because you begin to realize that you yourself might actually be wrong about one or two things. You could actually be wrong. So low anthropology creates a humility in the person, in you yourself, but it also affects how you see others. And this is what it does. If it begins to sink into how you see the world, it might make you able to be compassionate towards others. If you think people can fix themselves, you will be angry all the time because nobody will be getting better and you think they should be getting better. And this is setting yourself up for disappointment. If you've treated a child this way, they are likely estranged from you. If you have treated a spouse this way, they probably have deep contempt and there's emotional ice in the relationship. So if you, if you just want, if you think people can get better just by you telling them, it means you have a high anthropology. If you find yourself lecturing people a lot, it means you have a high anthropology and it means people will disappoint you all the time. So uh, if you can get a low anthropology, it means uh, you will see others like yourself as people who are often unable to change themselves, unable to even see the ways they need help. And um, 
just human beings who are bent, broken, and flawed. Uh, and so that gives you a place to be compassionate towards them as opposed to um, condescending, critical, judgmental, and uh, haughty, arrogant towards them. So low anthropology means you will see yourself um, um, accurately and it leads to humility. And it also means you'll see others accurately and then thus be compassionate towards them. Now, low anthropology doesn't mean you don't have any accountability and all that sort of stuff. I'm just, that's another podcast episode. And maybe John and I can talk about that later. The other thing though, low anthropology is step one. High Christology is the other thing. Um, if you have a low anthropology, it means you need a high Christology. In other words, you need somebody to help you other than yourself, somebody who can actually get the job done. And um, I think these two things are inversely proportional. If you have a high anthropology, high view of human beings to get better on their own, you will have a low Christology. You don't need Jesus to do much. There's no need, like Carrie Underwood said, for Jesus to take the wheel if you're doing just fine in the driver's seat. However, if you have a low anthropology, you need a high Christology, which means you need help from the outside, help that is not you, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, how do you get a low anthropology and a high Christology? Well, you listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, not try hard to be a decent person most of the time, he said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the correct response to that is, Lord, have mercy. And that's what the disciples, they hear Jesus say that. And they say, well, who could do that? And Jesus says, well, with you, it's not possible. Low anthropology. But with God, all things are possible. High Christology. And so if you hear the clear command of God's holy law, you realize you are not as as much hot stuff as you thought you were, that's a low anthropology, and that you need someone much more powerful to help you, to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, which is a high Christology. Jesus is God, Jesus is the one who can save you, and Jesus is the one that through the Holy Spirit can transform you, sanctify you from the inside out. So those are my two things in this time of pandemic. If you have a low anthropology, you'll understand why people are terrible about masking and why they never put it on their nose or wear it on their chin. If you uh, have a low anthropology, you'll be able to uh, have grace for people um, who seem to not take it as seriously. Uh, if you have a high Christology, you'll also know that he's the one that's going to get us out of this mess um, in all kinds of ways. So anyways, those are my deep thoughts. High Christology, low anthropology in a time of important epidemiology. There we go. <laughs> Well said, my friend. Um, and uh, thank you for that reflection. And, um, you know, we'll get into the content in, a bit, content in a bit, but one of the things I really appreciated about it is just the practicality. He gave us two terms that are interwoven, can't really be separated. You flesh them out and you've given us something to think about. So thank you for that. Um, so I want to, you know, I kind of uh, have some questions just in general, I want to ask you and talk to you about, but I want to just start with your reflection. Um, because as someone who is familiar with these terms, low anthropology and high Christology, I'm also familiar with the natural resistance that some might feel to the term low anthropology. And one of the um, common misunderstandings, I think, I experience from people who um, might initially not be on board with the idea of a low anthropology is that they confuse our capacity um, with 
um, I don't know, maybe our worth as people made in God's image or our belovedness or something like that. So is it correct to say that when we talk about low anthropology, we're not talking about our belovedness as children of God, but really about our capacity to affect the change we want through our own willpower apart from grace? Is that a, a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, human beings have uh, infinite worth and are beloved children of God and are made in God's image. And one of the things that I love about Christianity Christianity is the paradox. It allows us to think like grownups, meaning two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Like the fact that human beings can have worth, value, created in God's image, beautiful, creative, uh, wonderful, but can also be awful. Yeah. And, and, and I don't mean awful like you know, out there keying cars and kicking over mailboxes uh, just for spite. I'm, one of the most revealing self-revelations of low anthropology came from, as far as I know, an atheist uh, Jewish speaker, Ira Glass, whose podcast, be like, he's the granddaddy of the podcast with This American Life. And in one of the early episodes, I think it's one of the 300s, he has a, uh, an episode entitled, um, uh, the devil inside. And he begins with this reflection about sitting at his home, uh, at his computer and his, somebody knocks at the door to deliver a package and he didn't want to answer the door because he was engrossed in whatever he was doing. His wife asked him to answer the door and he said, no. And she was kind of in her pajamas and not really fully dressed. And he said, no, you look fine. You get the door. And he objectively knew she didn't look like she was in a position to open the door, but he justified arguing with her so that she should do it. And what he reflects on this is amazing is that the justification and rationalization for what he knew was wrong was immediately present in his mind. He didn't have to think really hard about how to justify this wrong thing that he sort of knew he was doing. And that's what I talk about, about low anthropology. If, if your spouse has asked you to fix a squeaky door or a leaky faucet, and it has not been touched for two years, and you have in your brain good reasons why that hasn't happened, that is low anthropology. If you are someone who finds yourself scrolling through Twitter, getting more and more depressed, and yet you can't stop doing it, that is low anthropology. If you find yourself wrapped into an internet troll debate, if you are an internet troll, you kind of hate yourself for doing it, but you can't see that's low anthropology. And so you and all those people are beloved. All those people have a mama who loves them, hopefully. All those examples, fictitious examples that have no relation to you or me, John. But that um, so we can we can hold those two things at the same time. People are beloved. I mean, again, and the other thing, too, is you can't if you don't have a low anthropology, you'll be very confused by the persistence of things like racism and misogyny. Right. Uh, you'll be very confused by um, the tendency in human beings to always go to extremes, whether the left or the right. Uh, and this is why I think low anthropology as I said, is so important in making us compassionate towards our fellow human beings. Well, I think that's another paradox though, because, you know, you mentioned paradoxes and, um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. So tell me if you see things differently, but you referenced the recovery movement, which has a really, you know, proven track record of affecting change in people's lives. But it starts out with step one, admit that you cannot make this change yourself and that your life is completely unmanageable. And what I heard you say, um, and what I know from my own experience, 
is that this admission of our powerlessness, of our own inability to do certain things, and of having a realistic assessment of ourselves, ironically and paradoxically opens up new powers, powers for self-compassion, powers for empathy, uh, and maybe powers for compassion. Now, you know, I know that it's a slippery slope because then you can make a low anthropology instrumental to this other place where we just get to have these virtues and slip into a, a, um, a high anthropology. But, you know, um, any of that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, somebody who is an addict, or maybe you wouldn't say you're into full-blown addiction, but you have some, let's say, repeated suboptimal behaviors that you'd like to stop that seem unable to do so. If you have a high anthropology, you will think that you can quit and you will try to rely on your own strength to do that, to fix yourself. Again, this is the classic New Year's resolution. I, I, every year, somebody tells me, I'm going to really just blow it out of the park on New Year's Eve, and then I'm going to get my act together on January 1st. And it never works because that's a high anthropology. That is trying to rely on a broken thing yourself to fix a broken thing yourself, and it will never work. And the reason that a low anthropology uh, counterintuitively actually works is because it forces you to stop depending on yourself. Again, this is what the 12 steps are all about. If you say your life is unmanageable and you are powerless to change it, low anthropology is that it's, it's an admission of powerlessness. It's what's in Psalm 51. As we go through Lent, if you, if you do the Ash Wednesday service, like it's all in our tradition. And if you begin with that admission of powerlessness and you ask then a power greater than yourself, to save you and to help you and to redeem you, that's actually where, that's where the juice happens. I mean, that's where the power is, not in yourself. So yeah, I mean, if you, admission of powerlessness is actually the thing that, that, that seems to turn us from relying on something that doesn't work. I mean, it's, you know, if you try to fix a broken thing with a broken thing, it won't work. If you're trying to fix your lawnmower and you don't have the right tools to do it, it will just be a futile effort. Uh, but if you can actually give it to somebody who's an expert who knows the thing or two about small engine repair, and you might actually get somewhere. And that's what we do. That's what the low anthropology and the high Christology, that's why they go hand in hand. Cause you're like, oh, if I can't do it myself, if I can't get the job done, there better be somebody else who can. Oh, there's Jesus Christ. Maybe I should give this problem to him. And it's the high Christology that makes the low anthropology good news. Because if we didn't have the high Christology, the low anthropology would be completely, uh, I mean, it would just be nihilism and awful. Right. And this is not, yeah, this is absolutely not nihilism. And it's, it's really, uh, you know, there's the reason why people get nervous when you say low anthropology, because they, you know, they think you're saying, are you saying like I'm a worthless person or something? Again, that's not what we're saying at all. It's just, we're trying to get a little, honest. And I think the reason it sounds bad and people get nervous at first is because there's so much language these days about um, how great people are. And yes, people are great and can do wonderful and amazing things. And yet, how do you make sense of what people are searching for on Google? Like there's a whole book about what Google searches reveal about ourselves. These sociologists could look at the anonymized, like anonymous Google searches and uh, it reveals some really terrible stuff. Uh, you know, um, that what we pray in our confession, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I mean, we should say we've sinned against you in thought, word, deed, and internet search, because there's some just junk in there. And, and I'm, not trying, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. There's just like, there's, there's 
I mean, I probably am in some way judgmental, but you know, our Google searches revealed we're we're, anthropology. That's right. That's right. We're more racist, more sexist, just more, just, you know, we're just, we're not good people. I mean, we are beloved. We are made in God's image and we are really good at finding creative ways to sin. And to, I mean, try to get in an argument with your spouse and not feel completely justified in your point of view and totally like dismissive of your partner's point of view. This is what low anthropology is. And so again, you won't even be able to make sense of yourself or have compassion on the person you live with or your family members if you don't, if you don't kind of get this on some level. Just like you can be angry at your child for some legitimate transgression and love them at the same time, we can also say human beings are made in God's image and, and infinitely worthy and valuable and beloved and sinners. Like this yeah. is the Christian message on some level or well, part of it. Two things, you know, because, uh, you know, truth is truth, right? And so if this is true, we should be able to see some some areas in other, li- in, in other aspects of life and just kind of um, not that um, the Christian gospel needs the credibility of other disciplines, but I do think it's interesting to bring them in. So two thoughts come to mind. One is the idea you said of, you know, um, uh, how our mind immediately has a justification for our behavior, you know, mm-hmm. that, that um, that's just like neuroscientists would say the same thing. But that's right. possibly how the brain works, that we kind of have this impulse and like a decision is made. And then that the role of the brain is to uh, spit out a story where we either get to be the hero, maybe sometimes the victim. And so uh, now for those of you listening, I'm not a neuroscientist. If you are, please forgive me if I've misspoken. The other is uh, Brene Brown, who I know that you appreciate and um, who's really kind of like America's therapist, I think during the pandemic, her podcast has taken off. But one of the things um, that she said in her book, Rising Strong, that um, really made a lot of people upset, but she like kind of, you know, puts her foot down on it, is she asked people to try on the belief that people are doing the best they can. Um, and that's really a secular articulation, I think, of a low anthropology. It's basically, I mean, really, it's just a way of saying whatever you see, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the moments of heartbreaking beauty and the moments of like terrible sin, tragedy and failure in that moment, people, yourself, all of us, we are doing the best we can. Like, does that yeah. resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, C.S. Lewis had a similar idea in some of his writing. He said, you know, we tend to look at people and we can say, oh, look at that person over there. She's a good person. Look at that person over there. He's a bad person. And he said, you know, you don't know anything about their lives. That person who you think is a bad person because he can't hold a job and he, he's, he has an uncouth manner or whatever it is. He may have a childhood that would drain the blood from your face if you were to hear about it. And just the fact that he is breathing and trying to, you know, just not act on whatever impulses he has all the time is a miracle. And he may be farther along on the holiness chart than this person who looks like a good person, but she grew up with a stable family and a loving home. And, you know, it's actually not that hard for her to follow the societal norms. So I think, yes, having a low anthropology, one part of that is just, if you are open to the idea of the, the inherent brokenness in every human being, some of which, you know, nature, nurture, all that working together, brain chemistry and all that stuff. Um, then, uh, yeah, you are, this is the, this is Brene Brown's way of talking about what I'm saying. You have compassion on people. If you realize 
they are busted up kind of like you. And uh, yeah, this it, people are, I think for the most part doing the best they can because and this is so key because we walk through life with a standard. If there's people that you go, not you, John, you know, putative you listeners out there. Um, if one is thinking about um, like, there's a consistent group of people that you tend to look down upon. You just need to like, part of this is realizing they are doing the best they can being they are, they want love and belonging just like you. And because of factors outside of their control, their parenting, where they grew up, the year they were born, their genetic makeup, all these things have led them to believe and act in certain ways that you don't like, but are just as sort of contingent and arbitrary as would have led you to believe the things that act the way you do. So yeah, I, I, all that to say is the answer to your question, yes. So um, this is Lent and um, Lent traditionally a time of repentance, self-examination, all of that stuff. And so um, if we're going to try on this worldview for you listeners and you're like, okay, I want to try on the idea of a low anthropology um, what that means is that we don't get to see repentance with this understanding as um, kind of gritting our teeth, making some plans, exercising our willpower, kind of like a glorified spiritual New Year's resolution. We don't get to see repentance that way. So how do we see repentance um, during Lent uh, with a low anthropology? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Um, how do we express it adequately? That's a great question. I mean, I think it, obviously your Lenten discipline, it's going to look different for, for everybody. But I think on some level, what repentance looks like, you know, a lot of times Christians think that repentance means stopping doing the bad thing. It's a bad thing that I do and I'm not going to do it anymore. Or maybe there's something that's not that bad, but I'm going to stop doing it as like a test of my willpower. This is the classic of giving up chocolate or something like that. Like it has zero to do with actual ethical living in the world. Um, it's, it's probably connected to your own sense of like spiritual pride. Like I can do this, I can starve myself for this thing or, and, or, or often it becomes like Lent is the Christian church's answer of how to get ready for swimsuit season. Like it's basically spiritual dieting so that by Easter you can you know look good for the family photo. So, I think the kind of repentance that I'm interested in is a change of mind and a change of heart. Moving from an ego-centered life, a self-centered existence, to one where you are um, trust, trusting in God. I mean, this is what our baptismal vows are all about. Do you renounce sin, Satan, and do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior, putting your whole trust in his grace and love? And to me, that's what repentance is about, is turning from trusting in yourself and your own efforts and your own willpower and trusting instead in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Now, how do you do that? What does that look like? I think, the, you know, one of the key things you said is self-examination. And so whether that means you go talk to a therapist once a week, maybe that's your Lenten discipline. Maybe it's um, uh, with a mentor or something, doing some sort of writing down uh, your resentments and kind of looking through those things. Uh, it can be different things for different people, but I think it's, it's, a, it's Michael Jackson got it partly right in Man in the Mirror. He said, um, 
if you want to make the world a better place, look at yourself and make a change. He said, and I'm starting with the man in the mirror. What he got right is you start with the man or woman in the mirror and you do that self-examination, but you then don't say, and I'm going to make a change. You look in the mirror and say, I need someone else to help me. And so it's that change of thinking. Uh, that's what repentance is, is to me, which uh, admittedly is hard to do. I do think one of the things that our tradition offers people uh, in the Episcopal Church is we give people the prayers that hopefully people turn their brains and hearts on as they're praying these prayers. But if you pray that confession every Sunday, on some level, it is inviting you to self-examination. It is inviting you to repent from a life where you think, I'm just getting better every way, every day, because I'm trying hard. And it invites you into a life of admitting your own weakness and frailty and, uh, and, and turning to God for help. It makes me think um, Thomas Merton has this great quote where he says that um, um, basically that we can be glad of our weaknesses, our sins, our infirmities, our wretchedness. I mean, he, he has this like long list in his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, because he concludes that we have nothing to seek but mercy and that yeah. all of these things actually help us in seeking mercy. And so let's go ahead and just even thank God for them because they enable us to seek mercy. And whenever you quoted um, that part of, you know, the baptismal covenant, uh, will you put your whole trust in his grace and, you know, will you turn to Jesus Christ, accept him as your savior, put your whole trust in his grace and love? I mean, that's actually kind of shocking. It's really what you're talking about. It's not 80% of the trust. It's not right. like that. It's not divided up like 57% trust in Jesus's grace and love, 43% trust in my ability to change. Basically, it's 100% trust in grace and love. And what I think I hear you saying, because that's the high Christology, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the high Christology, that if 100% of trust goes into grace and love, zero, I mean, it's just basic math, 0% goes into trusting in ourselves. Yeah, that's right. And I think most American Christians, from what I can tell, through both survey data and just personal experience, and I think most people... Um, who are theists in some way, they sort of have this view of it's like 80-20. And this is called, you know, the theological name for this is semi-Pelagianism after this uh, um, heretic named Pelagius, a monk who thought that people were, he had a very high anthropology and he thought people could get it done on their own. They could please God and, and basically earn the gold star from God on their own behavior. Um, and so if you weren't doing it, it was your fault. And People quickly said, well, that's pretty extreme. And then there grew this thought, you know, semi-Pelagian, where there's there's some grace, uh, but you also have to do your part. So, you know, you have to, God helps those who help themselves is the American scripture. Again, it's not biblical. That's not, that verse is not in the Bible, listeners. Uh, and if you ever say that at St. Michael's Austin, John Newton will come and hunt you down. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, that's a, most people do are by default semi-Pelagian. Like I will be a decent person. Uh, and when I mis make a mistake, Jesus is there as the, as the life preserver. Like he's there to kind of rescue me if I fall out of the boat, but it's my job to like row the boat and say, you know, I got to do my part. And, uh, but that is not what our baptismal covenant says. Our baptismal covenant says, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as a savior and put your whole trust in his grace and his love? Not, as you say, 80%, 90%, or even 99%, but 100% of your trust in his grace and his love. Um, 
and not in yourself. And that's terrifying on some level because we, we want, we like control and to not be in control is scary to us. Uh, and um, yeah, that, but, but that's, that's, that's what Christianity is about. Yeah. So a beautiful, beautiful reflection. So this podcast really is about two things, um, two things inform it. One is Lent, which we're speaking about right now with repentance. But the other, you know, this Calm Words for Anxious uh, Hearts podcast was started in response to the pandemic. Um, and so I want to shift gears a little bit and just kind of check in with you. I want to see, you know, how are you doing, Aaron, um, a year into COVID? And I'm just wondering, you know, how you're doing, how the, the people you serve at St. Albans are doing, and has this experience changed you in any way, good or bad? Uh, that is a great question. Um, I, um, I am reminded of <laughs> what I saw somebody tweet recently, this new word to answer the question, how you're doing, which is to say, I'm pandemic fine. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, obviously like there are many things in my life that are basically okay, but, but we, to be, to be honest, we have to say that this is taking a toll on us and it is hard. And the, uh, the way I describe it sort of is it's like doing everything you used to do, but you're doing it underwater. Like everything is just a little bit harder and it just feels like there's something pushing against you as you're trying to do it, whether it's your own fatigue or your own lack of motivation or, um, and I, I don't know anybody who is not affected by this in some way. And so that, that is definitely there. Um, I think most people, uh, we are leaky buckets, meaning we have a certain level of like feel goodness around us. And then and some buckets are leaky than others, but we're always sort of leaking that out and you need to get refilled and recharged in whatever way. And a lot of us, I think have lost the ways that we typically refill and recharge. Even the introverts I know are sort of like, they're done with quarantine. So. I think I've experienced some of those things, but I am, I think, you know, we've talked about paradox in this podcast and how uh, Christians are able to say two sort of opposite things at the same time, like Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, human beings are sinners, and yet human beings are fully loved, like all these kind of paradoxes. And I think one of the things I can say is that there are so many challenges, difficulties, and things about life right now that are the worst. And yet there are also things that are really amazing. And so I have lots of, I mean, there's, there's ways I've seen the staff here at St. Albans rise to the challenge in incredibly surprising, beautiful and creative ways of doing ministry in this time. Um, in my own family, there have been all the stresses that everybody is dealing with, but there've also been some real beautiful things that have come out of it. And, uh, you know, just of being at home together for a really long time and just the amount of time we're getting to spend each other. So that's a long answer to your question, but I think basically I'm, I, I'm, I'm okay. And I'm grateful for all the things that have enabled me to be okay. And in some, in some days more than okay. That's a beautiful answer. I love the idea of being pandemic fine. Um, it is much more efficient and uses far less syllables than the awkward pause, all things considered, wink, wink. <laughs> Into things. That's what I've been doing. So anything that, you know, helps me be more, that's, that's great. Um, so what do you see as the role of the church right now? Pretty open-ended question, but how would you answer that? What's, what's the church's role or job or, you know, right now? 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I don't think the church's role is in some way it's it's in some ways it's not different in any way from what it has always been. The church's job is to, uh, as Jesus Christ tells his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, go forth into the world making disciples um, and baptize you know teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So our call is to make disciples. And that means not only taking people who are uh, kind of outside of uh, our family and inviting them in, but it also means helping those who are already in the family, people who are already disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, grow in that. And uh, I think one of the things that is really important, again, that this is something the church always does, but is just more important. And maybe it's got like, you know, we've circled it in red pen and highlighted it a bunch in this, in this season. And that is uh, to remind people of the fact that we are so disconnected because we're isolated, that we are bound together by something that's bigger than us. Um, uh, we are the body of Christ, even if we aren't physically together. I think one of the things that the church also allows us to do that's really important is to give people language to talk about how they're feeling. I mean, the Psalms are this incredible resource. And I've just been reminded of this is when we went into the pandemic, we started like many churches offering morning prayer every day online. And we thought like, you know, thought this podcast would be like 10 episodes. We thought that would be, you know, a few weeks. But what that's done for us is we've gotten back into the habit. One of the big things is reading the Psalms. So that gives incredible language that allows people to validate the negativity they're feeling, the aloneness, the isolation, the difficulty, the anxiety, the fear, the sleeplessness, all that stuff that's in the Psalms. And so I think one of the roles of the, of the church is to remind people that it is okay to talk about your difficulties, your anguish, your, um, your anxiety, and your isolation. If Jesus Christ can say from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he's allowed to shed uh, tears and sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, we absolutely as Christians can name the hard things and not say everything's fine. And, and so th I think that's one of the, you know, the resources the church gives us being able to speak truthfully about what we're going through and yet still say my soul uh, belongs to God and I will praise him and his mercies are new every morning. Again, it's this the idea of paradox. We can do both those things at the same time. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, well, um, I love that. I want to go ahead and, and uh, pivot. Um, we're almost out of here, but I'm going to ask every one of our podcast guests during Lent five questions at the very end. Um, and just take a deep breath. Don't think too much. One, Speed round. Like just one sentence. And if you need to pass, you can pass. But um, just like a sentence, max two for each question. Okay. You ready? Okay. Yeah. John Newton's five questions. Number one, what are you grateful for at the moment? I am grateful for, uh, for my wife. Uh, that, and that, that I'm, I'm not saying that because we're recording this a few days before, before Valentine's Day. <laughs> uh, I really am in so many ways. She has stepped up as someone who's making masks and who is coordinated. Like she worked to get my mom a vaccine in South Carolina, like hours on the phone and the internet, just lots of ways that she has been incredible through this whole time. And I am really, really grateful for her. Great. Number two, what are you less sure of? 
given your experience of the pandemic than you were, say, last February? I'm less sure that things just go on normally forever. <laughs> Good. Well said. Question number three, uh, is there anything that you are more sure of as a result of the last year? I'm more sure of that people are surprising and are, and, you know, I know we said, we talked about low anthropology, but, you know, there is a, we also talked about the belovedness and the, you know, divine image in people. Like people are just surprising in terms of what they are able to do. Love it. Number four, what movie, show, book, or song has brought you sanity and or peace in the past year? Ted Lasso. Be a goldfish. It's a great. And if, yeah. And it just, and if everybody on your, uh, all the, all the guest speakers in this, if they don't say Ted Lasso, I don't know who they are. Okay. It's like the best thing to come out of the pandemic. <laughs> I do recommend Ted Lasso. It's on Apple TV, $4.99 a month, pretty cheap. Um, I would highly recommend it. Last question, Aaron, whenever you meet God face-to-face, what do you hope to hear God say to you? Man, well, I just, I, it, I don't really even, I don't know if there's even words that I want to hear. I just, I know that that sense of belovedness and being cherished and being home, like all that wrapped into one. I, I, it's not that I envision hearing something. It's more I envision a hug. Yeah. Um, my friend, uh, I would tell you that you're a beautiful and capable person, <laughs> but I do not want to contradict um, the heart of your message. So I'll just say- No, no, no. You can say both at the same time. I am beautiful. <laughs> And I'm a human being. You're a, you're a beautiful, capable person. Uh, thanks so As much. As are you. Thanks for being here. Um, and, you know, one of the gifts of um, COVID um, or just, you know, one of the things I probably wouldn't be doing right now if it weren't for this pandemic is speaking to you and sharing your voice with St. Michael's in a podcast I never would have started. So um, I give thanks to God for that and for you and just want to thank you for being here. Thanks, John. It's a real pleasure. Great to see you again. And I have to say, you look marvelous. Well, I don't know about you, but I thought that that was a really interesting and engaging podcast by the Reverend Aaron Zimmerman. And so um, I hope that you found his ideas useful, the idea of low anthropology and high Christology. And I don't think those are really terms I've ever used here at St. Michael's in a sermon or a teaching, but as I think about my own voice, I could hear a lot of it in uh, Aaron's voice, and so uh, as you think about what those mean, I'll at least tell you what they mean to me. When I hear the term low anthropology, what that means to me, practically speaking, is that even when you can't be the person you want to be, um, that Christ is fully with you, that you are loved, and that mercy is always waiting, not just for you, but for the other people in your life and the other people in this world who also are doing the absolute best they can, who often, if not always, fall short, not only of their own expectations for themselves, but uh, of the expectations that others place on them. And that that's okay, because a high Christology means that there is plenty of mercy, grace, love, salvation, healing, always flowing from God to God's beloved children. That's you and that's me. And so next week, 
on Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. We're going to have the Reverend Becky Zartman. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you real soon. God bless.